This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode of Bookmarked is brought to you by Libro FM. Get two books for the price of one with your first month of membership using the code BOOKSTACKED. Again, use promo code BOOKSTACKED when you start your membership at Libro.fm. Or check the show notes for a quick link to get started. Offer only valid for new members in the US and Canada. everyone, my name is Chelsea Regan and welcome to the Bookmark Podcast. Today, and I can't quite believe I'm saying this, but I will be talking to Daniel Handler, who of course is the man behind Lemony Snicket, best-selling author of a series of unfortunate events along with many other books. He's written a new book, Poison for Breakfast, which is one part philosophy, one part mystery, and just an overall thought-provoking and really hilarious read. I can't wait to ask him all about it. So without further ado, let's get started. Well, hello, Ms. Regan. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for being here with us today. This it's is my delights. such an honor to speak with you. Thank you. It's nice to be on the air. I know people will be listening to us, but we're actually getting to gaze at each other through the screen, quietly judge our each other's backgrounds, things like that. Oh, 100%. kind of feels appropriate for you. I am recording this in my attic because it is the quietest location in my new apartment, and it felt very right to talk about this book in an attic for some reason. Yeah, your lighting has the appropriate amount of creakiness. Yes. I'm intrigued that your new apartment has an attic. That seems like a, a nice bonus. It very much was. The podcaster's bonus is the attic. <laughs> exactly. Oh, I hadn't thought about that, but they should yeah. put that on the lease. The childhood bedroom was an attic, oh, I mean, which makes it sound less comfortable than it was. It was very comfortable, but I liked being at the very top, and it meant that there was, like, a bonus flight of stairs mm-hmm. that you had to, like, put your thing away or whatever you were doing that you didn't want to get caught you had there was the regular flight that everybody went up to bed and then it was like the one bonus flight it came in handy a few times hadn't thought about that but yeah mom and dad got to like take a little bit extra time to come and check on you it's exactly yeah. the amount of time you'd need so i want to dive right in i was hoping you could give our listeners just sort of a brief introduction your sort of short pitch about your newest book poison for breakfast my short pitch let's see Poison for Breakfast is about a day in the life of Lemony Snicket in which he finds a note telling him that he's had poison for breakfast, and he begins to investigate this mystery, and I think like all good mysteries, the mystery becomes more of a large cosmic mystery than a small logistical mystery. It is a book that, if you would like to think about death or the power of music or colonialization, or have deep, misunderstood cultural rifts or literature in translation. If you'd like to think about childhood, 
Yeah, it brings up, I would say, a lot of large things that are often on my mind as I wander around this bewildering planet. How was that? That was amazing. That was so good. I, I struggled writing even the little brief introduction to this, but that was exactly the best way to, to describe this, although Thank I'm you. guessing you thought a bit about it. I've thought can... a lot about it, but I'm not always good at a pitch. A pitch, mm. just the word pitch makes me kind of freeze up. No, yeah. you, you sold it perfectly. I want to read it again. Great. And so, I'll wait here. Oh, exactly, no, you'll read yeah. it again later. It's fine. <laughs> it's, it's manageable in that amount of time. I could definitely get back to you. And so you mentioned in there that the book is A Day in the Life of Lemony Snicket. So Lemony Snicket is the author of this book. But you also mentioned it has this big cosmic elements, which to me felt really, really personal, like really personal to maybe how your thoughts come together or how your brain works. And so I was wondering about the decision to make it the day in the life of Lemony Snicket rather than about yourself, Daniel Handler, and also if this means that we might be seeing more books from you from the universe of a series of unfortunate events. Is this book in that universe as well, how those things come together? Yeah, it's a complicated question, I think. One of my favorite quotes in the world, things to think about, is when the writer Vladimir Nabokov, who I admire a lot, said that, Reality is one of the few words in the English language that only makes sense if you put it in quotes, which is interesting to me. And so this book, I think, occupies a space that is kind of between me and Lemony Snicket. So everything that happens in the book, everything that it is described in the book is real and that it is linked to the world which we're all stuck. So there are notes at the back of the book, for instance, that if you didn't believe me when I talk about some of the authors and musicians and other people who are in this book. I help you go and find them for real, as we say. And so, yes, there's more of my own autobiography more directly in this book, I would say, than any of the other Snicket books. But in many ways, that it always felt like I was talking about things that were on my mind in a book. I mean, I don't know how you would write a book if it wasn't something that was on your mind. Yeah, but I agree this kind of occupies a strange space. And I would put it within the universe of the Snicket books for sure. But, you know, if you're waiting for a cameo from Sonny Baudelaire or something, you won't get one in A Poison for Breakfast. But if you enjoy Lemony Snicket's brooding philosophical digressions, then, then this might be good for you. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And, well, I'm definitely on the team of I would not mind more books in a series of unfortunate events or that world. You've captured something really fun here of his mentality and maybe a little bit more grounded and personal way that I really, really enjoyed. Thank uh, you. And it's always, I mean, in a series of books, there's always kind of the difficulty of striking a balance between people wanting more and how the feeling of wanting more is actually like the feeling that I'm going for. I want people to want more, right? It reminds me of like when you go see a musician perform, they do a couple of encores that feels great. But every so often they come out and they do like seven encores and then you feel this thing of like, please go home. I'm done listening to you. So, I mean, that's what kind of what I did with all the wrong questions is that people said there should be a sequel to a series of unfortunate events. And I thought, no, there shouldn't be a sequel. But then I thought, what if I go back in time? But what if I go back so far in time that it doesn't answer really any of the questions you thought you had, but it answers different questions instead? And so I imagine there'll be more Snicket books and more explorations of that world. But I think the trick is for people to want more. 
right? The trick is for people to keep thinking about it afterward. That's the kind of books that I like the best is when I continue to think about them instead of like, yep, I'm all done there. I never have to think about that again. And I would say this is definitely one of those books for sure, Poison for Breakfast. I read it much faster than I expected to, so I had a couple of days before this conversation to think about it, and I've just been thinking about different elements of it. And I think you were talking about Snicket's writing style and his brooding. I think something else that he does that's really powerful is this writing style of not even breaking the fourth wall, but just completely ignoring it. He is speaking directly to you as the reader. It's both really engaging, but it's also kind of a little bit ominous. I remember as a kid reading the books like under the covers with the flashlight, and every time he would say something directly to me, I'd be like, is someone here? It's happening. Like, <laughs> he's, he's, he's watching me. I don't know what's going on. But I, I do was, admit that I stopped by several times when you were doing that. But that's, that's what it was. You know, oh. I get restless in the evenings. What am I supposed to do? You just find the people reading your books and are like, ha-ha, they're talking to me. That's right. <laughs> it's the least I can do. <laughs> it's helpful. It, really, it makes it more of a, like, well-rounded experience. Yeah, immersive, I think is yeah. what they call it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly the word. But as I was reading this book, you talk about in it how reading a book is like having a conversation with the author, and it just kind of clicked for me. And I was wondering if the style of Lemony Snicket and that style of speaking directly to your reader is a way of establishing that conversation very literally. Yeah, I hope so. And I think particularly in the world of children's literature, when you're a child and, you know, hopefully you're lucky enough to have someone reading to you, that that's the beginning of that conversation, right? When you read a picture book to a little kid, you don't just read all the words on the page. You know, you might say, oh, look at that. Look at that over there. Or like, oh, what's going on here? That's part of feeling like literature is a conversation. And so there are a lot of, I mean, countless authors have done a good job of it, but Roald Dahl does it a lot. He'll say, you and I think this is disgusting, but the twits really loved it, you know? Like, you and I would be frightened, but Matilda wasn't frightened at all. And I think that's a fun way to think about literature, and it's a nice space that literature can occupy better than other things can occupy. It makes a private space between you and the audience, but there's not a lot of art forms that can do it that way. Yeah, I think that technique really, really works, especially, I think, for literature. Not that I think your literature is, like, specifically for kids. I think anyone can enjoy the Lemony Snicket books, but books that are open to kids and, and that kids can enjoy in the same way. I was wondering, because in this book, too, you do have illustrations at the beginning of each chapter, and there is an mm -hmm. illustrator. And so is that part of the reason why that was an important element to keep in this as well for you? Yeah, I mean, illustrations are very interesting, I think. I wish more books had illustrations. There's something really alluring about staring at an illustration, and I have so many memories, and so many people I know have memories of, like, their favorite illustration, you know, that you can go back, and, I mean, now with the miracle of the internet, you can find, you're like, I remember that from Phantom Tollbooth. I can go back and literally find the drawing that I used to stare at over and over and over again. And my wife is an illustrator, so she has even more of that, just very specific memories of of illustrations, so I thought that was good. And then the good folks at Norton at the publisher found Margaret Kent, who I've never worked with before, and I just love the kind of handmadeness of her illustrations, so it feels as the book is about writing things down and finding a scrap of paper and taking notes, and these feel like more notes. You know, it's like you could almost believe that Lemony Snicket had just kind of drawn them in the margins, except that he can't draw like I can't draw. 
<laughs> I was going to say, they feel like doodles in a journal, the way some people like will draw instead of write in their journal things that they're thinking about. That was really the way they helped the story flow. And I, I really enjoyed that. And I think you're right. I don't think enough books that are not specifically picture books use illustrations. I think Phantom Tollbooth was like one of the ones I was thinking of, too, where I just the minute you say that, I have like the instant recall of some of those pictures and how fun they were and how much they added to that story. Yeah, and I'm not really actually that much of a visual person, but so many illustrations spoke deeply to me when I was young, and so I liked thinking about that too. I think now, and partially because I think because children's literature has moved into a more acceptable place for adult readers, I think adults are kind of more open to seeing illustration in a way that before just felt like, oh, that's for kids, I don't like it. You know, but now many adults can say, I like looking through this John Clausen picture book, even though I'm not reading it to a child because it has this kind of magical world in it. Yeah, definitely. And I think your books are, like I said, great examples of books that can be for any age and that anybody can enjoy. So including those elements that maybe people assume with kids literature or picture books makes it more acceptable to continue to include them in, in books meant for a little bit older readers. Your books have some of my favorite lines. I think oh. you, you're you so good at writing like that just quotable piece. And there were a couple that really stood out to me. One of my absolute favorites was, but of course there is nobody whom you'd really want to meet in a dark alley because and that, of course, is playing on the idea of like, I wouldn't want to meet him in a dark alley. And yeah. it's like, well, no, I just don't want to meet anybody in a dark alley. Like yeah. I, I had never thought about it, but like. Keep me out of dark alleys. I don't need to be down there. Yeah, I um, think the dark alley is really the problem in that hypothetical scenario. Exactly. It's not the person. It's that you're in a dark alley, like, with yeah. one other person by yourself. Well, and even good. the person that you wouldn't want to meet in a dark alley, they're probably not someone you would want to meet in a well-lit foyer either. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? you're yeah, not, no one says, like, I really like you. But you know where I don't want to hang out <laughs> with you in a dark alley? But, like, if we go to lunch, great. I don't think that's said very often. I think someone you don't want to see in a dark alley is someone that you don't want to see at all. And then someone you want to see in a dark alley, there's no one you want to see in a dark alley. If you have to be in a dark alley, you should, I think, be alone. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, like, no good option there, but being alone is the best of the bad ones. But I think what that line really does is that you have this really brilliant way of pointing out sort of these little truths or spins on turns of phrases that make them... That you suddenly have this moment where you're like, oh, that's so true. And you're also laughing because it's funny. And it's almost kind of like a spin on stand-up comedy, the way like stand-up comedians will take little things and sort of tell these stories about them to get people to both see the truth and to laugh. I was wondering if these are ideas that just come to or come through the process of writing. I think both. I carry a notebook with me uh, wherever I go. I don't know why I'm holding it up to the camera because A, no one else will be able to see it, and B, you already knew what a notebook looks like. I didn't have to demonstrate what that was. You didn't think to yourself, a notebook? I better look that up later. I don't know what that is. You knew. It is a very pretty notebook, I will say. It's oh, very small. It's like pocket-sized, and it's yes. white and gold. It's multicolored. It was purchased in India, and mm-hmm. it has the feel of perfect kind of homemade paper on the back. But I, ca- I carry a notebook wherever I go, and I write things down in it, although also particularly at home, Sometimes I don't know where my notebook is, and so I'll just write little things down all the time. I used to feel very self-conscious about having a legal pad in my lap when we're watching a movie or TV at home. So sometimes I would say, like, I'm thinking about this thing, and I want to take notes on it maybe later, and now I just have it in my lap because if somebody says something that I want to think about, I want to write it down, or if I have the ghost of an idea. And those things 
kind of just get scattered all over my tiny little ideas and my tiny little phrases. And then as I begin to coalesce a book, I begin to kind of gather those things. So in the case of Dark Alley, I don't have a specific memory of it, but, you know, that is a weird cliche. It's hard to unpack it in a way that really makes sense to you. And so I just had, I know I had an index card that said Dark Alley on it. And I began, as I was writing the book, all these index cards were kind of laid out next to me. And I was thinking about them and putting them in order. And I was like, yes, this goes here. This is something that goes here. That is just part of what my writing process is. But then there's also for sure things that I discover while I'm writing, you know, that I might write it and say, oh, there's something more that I have about this phrase that just came out of me. Because as much as I write down things that I overhear other people say, I write down things that I am saying. And so that's all kind of part of the big mess that is my working process. I love that. You're like looking at what other people say. That's kind of weird. But then thinking about stuff you've written and been like, huh, I could go off on that for a little while. That's something I really love about this book, too. You take all those things and keep going with them. You don't just write them and then let them go. There's more to everything, which I think is how our brains work. We do think about things more than just saying the sentence and then moving on. Yeah, and for the kind of book that I was trying to write for Poison for Breakfast, I got to give that a little leeway, you know, because I didn't have a melodramatic plot that I had to return to eventually. And then the book was also written in kind of stolen time. It was written the first summer that they were filming a series of unfortunate events, and I thought I was going to spend the whole summer on that set working really hard. And then, as is often the way with large entertainment conglomerates and singular artists, I was uh, fired, I think is the word I'm looking for. And so I suddenly had this free summer, and no one thought I was going to write a book. No one was expecting a book from me. No one really knew what I was up to. You know, most people were like, oh, I heard he was going away all summer. And so I just started going to the library every day and working on this book and trying to figure out if it really was a book or if this was just a kind of fantasy of mine that I could write a book that was mostly digressions. And so it was a delicious thing to work on to know that, like, it, it didn't count. If it didn't work out, I wouldn't have to call anybody and say, yeah, that's not a book, because no one knew I was writing it. So it's pretty magic. This book has a definite sense that you can feel that you are enjoying it, and Lemony Snicket is enjoying telling us this story, which I think always comes through in a book in a really fun way. It's always so much nicer to read those books than the ones where you're like, I think they might have been on deadline for this one. <laughs> like, I think maybe yeah. someone was expecting this from them, and uh, that's what we got here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are many beautiful books that have been written in pain rather than in joy, but, like, written as drudgery. I don't think if a book is feeling drudgerous as you're writing it that it's going to be pleasant for the reader. I think that would almost be impossible. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there that you wrote a bunch of this book in the library. And I will say, reading this book, you have a couple of descriptions of libraries and librarians in here that I think are amazing and so spot on. And I'm always really curious because I definitely have that sense, too, of libraries being like very safe, comfortable places, kind of like going home when you walk into a library. But I was wondering if libraries have always been that special place for you or if the connection came out of being a professional writer and it becoming both an office and a place that showcases and helps distribute the work that you produce? I would say both. When I was a child, there was a great branch library that I could walk to. When I was young, my parents would walk me there. Usually my dad, like after dinner, we'd go take a walk. 
And then as I grew older, I walked there myself and I had great librarians who were, you know, they were like anonymous in my head. I don't remember them because they were doing that thing of teaching me to find my own way in a library. And so I think the notion of, oh, you like this book? Who else, like, what else has this person written? Who else writes these sorts of books? You know, all those journeys that you can begin to take where I was guided very well on those. So that was definitely part of it. But in San Francisco, the kind of civic responsibilities of the library are taken very seriously. And the San Francisco library system is the first to hire a social worker full time and to kind of understand the library as a sanctuary that isn't just full of books for people who want to read, but for really vital resources for people who are in prime need of them. And so to begin to see that as I grew older during the Bush administration, when the Patriot Act passed to watch the San Francisco libraries fight censorship and fight surveillance in ways. And so it's why it's particularly dispiriting to me always to see what happens in children's literature. I think sadly a lot of the kind of youth librarians who are advocating for censorship, who are trying to take books off the shelves, who are trying to make sure that like no dangerous book gets into the mind of a child. Like I take that harder than I take a cranky parent who wants to do it because I think there's a deep civic responsibility of libraries. So I had the delight of it when I was a child, but I had the importance of it, I think, as I grew older. I do love that the librarian in Poison for Breakfast is a bit of a hero. She really helps out Lemony Snicket in sort of a crucial moment. And I love any story where a librarian is a hero. Yeah, there are quite a few librarian heroes in the Snicket books. There's a library in each volume of a series of important events in one way or another. And then there's quite the hero librarian in All the Wrong Questions. So, the, yeah, the idea of a secret conspiracy of literature and taste that is struggling to keep the world a saner place than it appears is, you know, kind of actualized in a series of unfortunate events and all the wrong questions as like a real thing. But it, I think it is just as real in the actual world. It just, it has like fewer dart guns and trap doors and things like that in the actual world, sadly. Uh, if only libraries had trap doors, that would be yeah. probably a little bit dangerous, but fun. <laughs> yeah, fun briefly and then really awful, but you know, that so much of life is like that. I don't know yeah, why. Yeah, the librarians would just be like, oh, there goes that trap door again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, perfect. I would say, I'm starting to think we shouldn't have a trap door. <laughs> like, we have a sign about it, but why do we have it? Yeah, that was probably what would happen. For the fun. This book is also sort of bursting with this love of reading and literature. And again, you have these brilliant quotes, but there's this one piece where you're talking about how we have to keep reading to try and find our next turn to triumph. And the minute I read that phrase, turn to triumph in terms of reading, I immediately had that connection of like the three or four books that I felt that way about in my life. When you read that book and you're like, this is the one, this is what I've been looking for. And I was wondering if it's the same way for you, if specific books maybe inspired that line and if so, what they might be. Oh, I mean, to start to make a list of books that have inspired me is kind of, I'm not sure how long this podcast is, but I'm pretty sure it's not like 90 hours long. Yeah, I mean, I think in that a book is like a conversation with someone, I think that 
the conversations that you've had with people that have shaped your life. It isn't just the person, it's the time, it's what you're asking, you know, it's all those circumstances of it. And so different books have meant to me different things over the years, I mean, as it should be. It's really impossible to say. I mean, right now, for instance, I keep showing you things I should just remember that's an audio thing. There's no reason for me to do this, but I'm showing it anyway. But I'm reading, uh, I'm rereading this book by a poet, uh, Dorothea Lasky, and it's called Animal, and it's about making poetry, which is maybe normally not necessarily what I would want to read, but when it first came to me, I opened it up, and I saw that the title was a reference to the Muppet Animal, because there's a photograph of Animal right there in the book, and that, like, I was like, okay, now I'm reading this. Like, when it was a book called Animal and it was by a poet, I was like, maybe someday, but I was like, nope, I'm getting right in here. And the way she writes about writing has been super important to me for this book that I'm working on now. And so I have relationships with books like that. And there's books that I keep coming back to. I mean, when I was a child, the work of Zilpha Keatley Snyder and Edward Gorey and Roald Dahl were really interesting to me. When I was in college, I was very taken with Vladimir Nabokov, but I mean, I and our my relationship with those books is different now because part of it is thinking about myself when I was younger, but he's still an achingly gorgeous writer. I mean, Haruki Murakami is really important to me. William Maxwell is really important to me. I mean, Toni Morrison has taken me, I think, kind of more places and more unexpected places maybe than any singular author in terms of her aura of work. But I read a lot. You know, I read pretty ravenously. And I like knowing that it's not a canon that you nail up on the wall. You know, it's not like, okay, I've figured out the books. These are the books. It's an ongoing conversation. And whenever there's conversations about the literary canon, which has real-world consequences, and I get that people want to kind of fight and argue about what is in there and what shouldn't be in there and what should be in there and how we want to shape it. But I think the most important canon is your own canon. Like, your most important canon is the books that are important to you, especially if you're a writer, to have books around you that are bringing you solace, that are bringing you inspiration, that are making you work, that are kind of pushing you in ways like exercise pushes you, or so I've read. And so... I think making that imaginary or real shelf of books and revising it all the time is just part of like living in the world and appreciating literature. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's such an important, again, another idea I, I think I knew, but I didn't know I know until you just said it that eloquently, but the idea that we all have our own personal canons that are important to us and you don't need to force yourself to fit the mold of something that someone is saying, these are the important books to read. It's okay to find the ones that mean a lot to you and, and to find the ones that triumph for you because books are written for all different kinds of people. I'll just say in college, I had a great writing teacher, Kit Reed, and her class was very atypical for a writing class. We met kind of once at the beginning and once at the end, which was basically a party but mostly you had to turn in 10 pages of fiction every week and you met with her in her kitchen for 15 minutes alone and she talked you through it. And one of the things that she did was she told you to go read things. You know, she would say like, oh, you're trying to do like a Mariel Spark thing here. So grab yourself some Mariel Spark. And I remember once that I ran into one of the other students and I was like, oh, I'm reading this book that Kit, that Kit have you read this book too? And he was like, no, I'm reading this whole different thing for her. And of course, she was tailoring what she was recommending to read, depending on what the writer was trying to do. 
And when I teach writing, which is not that often, I try to convey that message because so much writing instruction says, you know, if you read uh, William Trevor, you're going to learn so much. And it's like, yes, if William Trevor is important to you when you want to write like William Trevor, he's a brilliant writer, but not one size fits all like anything else. Right. If you just say, like, my favorite movie is this. And so this movie should be playing in all movie theaters all the time. It's like that doesn't work that way. And so I think, you know, remembering that the history of literature is the history of individual personality and you have an individual personality. So it's going to not be the same as anyone else's. That's incredible. And something else you said in there, too, that I think was really important is about how we read books at different times in our lives and they mean different things to us at different times in our lives. What we can get out of them is going to be different. And I actually think your books are a really good example of that. Reading this book really made me think about my experience reading a series of unfortunate events when I was a kid. And I had this one moment where in Poison for Breakfast, you talk about how answers can usually be found in books. The answers to the questions you're looking for can be found in your books. And it made me think about what answers as a kid I found in your books. And another thing that you talk about in this book that really clicked for me was this idea of being happy that you're sad because it means you care. Like, it's not a bad thing to be sad. It's okay to be sad because it means that you have compassion for the people around you or compassion for the situation. And so it really made me wonder if that's one of the reasons you tell unfortunate events, sad stories to help your readers, especially maybe younger readers, understand compassion and understand the importance of sadness in their lives? I would hesitate to put it that way because I don't like literature that comes from a place of instruction. And particularly children's literature is just like full of, I think children need to learn this. And so I've written this book and it's kind of like we were talking about the joy in that comes through because there is no joy. And that's what comes through. Um, you know, scolding literature has such a long tradition, uh, particularly for young people, but not even for just for young people. There's a lot of like, I don't think you care enough about this particular social issue. So I've written a book to make you feel horrible about it is not my idea of a good time. But I do think that I enjoyed dwelling in sadness and in contemplation about injustice and terror. When I was a child, that was interesting to me to think about terrible things that I knew were happening and not really being able to answer why they happen, whether there were things that were completely random or whether there were things that stemmed from a place. But that still doesn't really answer the question of how are we allowing this to go on. I don't want to mention particularly current events today because I think whenever people will be listening to this, they will look around the world and there will be something that seems senseless, that seems monstrous, that seems kind of hard to get over. You know, I didn't teach young people that that was going on. They already knew that was going on. But I think that sad books provide a place to think about that in a way. But I didn't think to myself, people don't understand sadness, so wait till they get a hold of this. But instead, that's something that I find important and that felt rare when I was young because so many books were just happy and toned down the conflict as much as possible to kind of put you in a place of manic excitement. And that's not my idea of a good time. That's like what happens when I drink too much coffee. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there is a, an unfortunate tendency, especially sometimes with books written for a younger audience, to be like preachy 
And that's not helping anybody. But I do think your books allow younger readers to think more about things, like you said, that they know are happening, but maybe they're not always given the opportunity to think about as deeply as your books allow them to. And that was really a sense I got from reading this book, too, is you just have this moment to think about things that maybe you do kind of rush through. This book has a really nice tempo that gives you time to breathe and really listen to each of the things Lemony Snicket is saying and telling us. And I really enjoyed that. I also think, I mean, one of the best things a book can do is give us the sense that we're not alone. And on a kind of personal level, there is some descriptions in this book of Mr. Snicket's very active internal imagination. It just felt very specific and special, and it made me feel seen in a way. There was one line in the book, you can change the landscape with your mind. And I had a moment where I was like, I didn't know other people did that. I thought that was just something I was doing where I'm in one situation and in my head I'm in a different situation. I was like, I really thought that was some deep, dark secret that no one else knew about. And the minute I read that, I was like, whoa, other people are doing this too. And so I was wondering about that active imagination. Is that something you share? I have to imagine that it's something that's also a part of your life, just how clearly you were able to describe it. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's something I could fake. You know, there's some things that I can learn when I'm writing a book. If there's something that doesn't come at all from my own personal experience, I can kind of imagine it, but I don't think that would be one of them. But I like thinking about what you're referring to because I think that is part of the experience of childhood and particularly kind of adolescence or near adolescence is that you begin to feel peculiar and unwelcome. And there's so many axes by which people are made to feel unwelcome. And there's so much insecurity at that age that everyone's trying to draw the circle that they're in and other people aren't in, the better to tell them that they're not in the circle. And it's really hard to feel, in varying degrees, depending on where you are and who you're with, to feel that lack of community is just really, really painful. And to try to reach it can sometimes even feel impossible. And I think that's, for me, discovering books at such a young age and taking to them, you know, having strong reading skills and having strong resources at my disposal really helped with that kind of thing. Because I felt continuous with literature, you know, even as a small person. I wanted to be a writer, but also I just felt like, oh, I can always, there's always something I can have with me that will make me feel good. And there was a book. And, you know, I'm looking around at my desk now, which has conservatively, like, 10 books on it. And this is, like, a desk I try to keep absolutely as clear as possible, mind you. And so, anyway, I won't tour you through my house. But there's kind of books everywhere, and I think that carrying them with me and having them with me has always felt like that kind of company to me. And I've always felt really lucky and that that turned out to be my company. Because if it were, you know... I only feel whole when I'm on a horse. It's like, okay, well, it's going to be tough to be on a horse all day long. Some people can do it, but that's going to be more challenging. But it's pretty easy to bring a book with you. Yeah, you have a line in this book that I want to get on a T-shirt. It's, you're never sorry you brought a book. And yeah. I think that is a life motto for so many people I know, including myself. And that's just the perfect way to say that. And I actually think this book is a great one to have with you because you can pick it up and read something interesting and, and jump into Lemony Snicket's mind, which I think is a fun place to be. But if it does scare me a little bit as a kid, it's fine. <laughs> it's good for me. Well, uh, thank you. Yeah. And that's why we made the book small. It feels like something you can take with you. For most people in the world now, it's not yet getting cold. But when it gets cold, it should be able to fit in your coat pocket. 
Yeah, it's exactly the right size for that. I love that. And so I think my last question for you, this was sort of a really interesting moment in the book. Mr. Snicket mentions that he almost never likes things that some people think everyone likes. And I liked I liked the phrasing of that. But I also thought it was interesting because I think a series of unfortunate events might fall into that category. It's definitely on the list of books people suggest when someone's looking for YA series of high acclaim and popularity. I was wondering, you talk in the book about paradoxes, and I was wondering if that's kind of a paradox that's difficult for you to reconcile, or if that's something that's just specific to him as a character. I just want to understand what you think the paradox is, so I can think about it. You think the paradox is that the books are miserable but also popular? Or that the books are popular, but Mr. Snicket almost never likes things that other people think everyone likes. Oh, I see. So that Mr. Snicket would not be a fan of his own work because almost yep. everyone likes it. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know. I'm tempted to reject it on its premise, but I think it's just because I hear from so many people who don't like the Snicket books. You know, oh, no. I mean, and I think particularly like in the you know kind of digital cultural moment in which we seem to be stuck for a little bit, complaint is heard louder than praise. I think that was probably always true, but it, now it just feels thunderously true. And it's not like I'm wandering the internet looking for people who hate me. I really scarcely wander the internet at all. But like the culture of complaint definitely reaches me a lot. And so I don't feel like uh, everybody loves me in my books. <laughs> I feel like it's actually kind of an argument starter in some ways. But I think in the case of what Snicket is describing, I think it's kind of a little bit of the alienation that we're talking about, and I think it's a little bit of the alienation that readers feel in today's world often, you know, because reading is a quiet activity, it's basically an individual activity, you can't really multitask while you're doing it, I mean, you can, like, let the soup simmer, or you can let the laundry machine do its thing, but you can't actively do something else while you're doing it. And I think that can feel alienating from the moment that we're in. And so the list of things that Snicket talks about that he doesn't like that most people like, I think, is describing that feeling of alienation. Yeah, no, that's I totally hear what you're saying. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's why books that can be so immersive are so important. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Snicket writing style and speaking directly to the audience and having a conversation makes your book so engaging. Because I think we do have a tendency now just from force of habit of wanting to be able to do the thing we're doing, but also scroll through our phones or like also have a conversation with someone in another way. And and your books, you don't want to do that. You want to pay attention to what he's saying. And I think that's what makes them fun. And that's absolutely what made this book so much fun for me. And Well, thank you. Yeah. Of course. Been full of flattery for me during this interview, which is um, I'm trying not to let it go to my head. I'm just gonna oh, you can let it go to your off. head. It's fine. <laughs> no, this, this was absolutely one of the coolest opportunities that's come up for us and for the podcast. This was a oh, ton Well, lovely. I hope it seduces other authors into wanting to converse with you because I think you ask wonderful questions. So. Oh, thank you. And I always like to wrap up with checking to see where can our listeners learn more about you and your books? Where's the best place on the Internet for them to, to track you down? Oh, the best place on the internet. Oh, goodness gracious. I know that's not a great question, but for yeah. you specifically. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, I mean, you can follow me, Daniel Handler. I don't spend very much time on social media, but the most time I spend would be on 
Instagram. So if you're interested, like when a book comes out or when I'm going to go someplace and talk about my work, I'll do that. It is mostly mostly scraps of poetry. So if you like poetry or if you feel like you don't read enough poetry, but you might like it, but poetry is intimidating, then you can go on over to my Instagram and read some stanzas and relax. But yeah, I'm, you know, information about Lemony Snicket is on all of the usual places. So you can go to your search engine and stop searching for whatever it is that you compulsively search for and instead look at Lemony Snicket and you should find some information about me. No, it's perfect. And I love your website. I think it's so much fun. And I love what you said, too, about poetry on Instagram. I'll have to check that out because I do think poetry is one of those things that can be when you try to dive head first, it's a little bit scary, but having like a little bit of it curated by someone you trust is always really, really helpful. Well, I'm glad. Yeah. And I think there's actually, in the case of poetry, particularly when you're beginning, there's actually something about the kind of scrolling of digital culture that can kind of help you because I think people feel intimidated by poetry and just to be like, and if you don't like it, just keep moving on as you can do with anything else. No one's thinking less of you. You're not like flunking an imaginary AP English test that you think is still happening. Everything's fine. You didn't like the poem. That's how most people are about most things. That's very fair. And oh yeah, those AP tests that never end. Life is one big <laughs> AP test that's just not ending. Yeah. Seriously, thank you so much for being with us today and for talking about your newest book. Thank you for having me into your attic. I appreciate it. Of course. I know. Everyone's going to be invited into my attic now. It's so exciting. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. I said it a bunch, but would highly, highly recommend Poison for Breakfast for anyone who loves Lemony Snicket. It's absolutely incredible. I want to thank everyone for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at BookmarkedYA. You can also follow Bookstacked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you liked the show, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Plucky Bookmark. I hope you all enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.